welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast, where we help families enjoy living with their dogs, ideally more than they do already. So um, today I'm joined by my smart and pretty and fantastically fun co-host, Julie Fudge-Smith. I'm Tina Spring, and we're so glad you're here. Today's topic is going to be something near and dear to all dog trainers' hearts, something that's referred to as trigger stacking, or uh, you'll hear it referred to as spoon theory as well. And we use this analogy for all sorts of things, for energy expenditure, for budgeting, for pain, for anxiety, all sorts of different things. Today, we're going to talk specifically, we're going to use a fake case, so if as we're discussing these two dogs, you go, I think they're talking about us. We're not, we love you, we're not. We made up this scenario from a whole bunch of different experiences that we've each had over decades of working with families with dogs. So any resemblance that the characters in today's episode have to your punk dog is completely accidental and not about you. We love you, we think you're smart and pretty. So. Let's introduce uh, today's mythical dogs, Lucy and Ethel. So uh, Lucy and Ethel are two small breed dogs, um, both girls. Think I love Lucy. That's how we chose the characters. And so Lucy is perhaps a little high strung, right? A little intense and is about four years old. So socially mature, but still relatively young for a small breed dog. The other dog we're going to refer to as Ethel, um, you know, the, the neighbor. <laughs> so she's another dog in the household that's super cute and plucky and funny and also a little bit energetic and a little intense, a little all about herself. And on the toy breed end of the continuum, one is more on the terrier end of the continuum and one is a little bit more on the sporting dog side of the continuum. So that's going to give you kind of worldview of all of it. Both of these dogs are really nice, happy dogs. Lucy has a little bit of sound sensitivity. I think you said we decided that she was going to have a storm phobia. Yes, she has a storm phobia and Ethel hates other dogs. But not Lucy. Usually. No, not Lucy. What she doesn't like is she doesn't like dogs at a distance. She gets very aroused by the sight of other dogs and kind of loses her little brain. Marbles go everywhere. Marbles go everywhere. So while one is sound phobic, the other one is touchy about the presence of dogs she doesn't know. So if we had to broadly say it, is Ethel just more excitable and exuberant, and Lucy is more on the anxious side of the continuum. Would you say that's a assessment? Yes, I would say that. I think that's what we were we were talking about before we started it. Yeah, was that Ethel was the excitable one, and so this like the sight of other dogs. Is it because she really doesn't like them? She hasn't been well socialized, or is it that she's just excited by the fact that there's another dog, and this is really exciting? And what if it's a vision problem? She's not sure what it is. Yes. Well, that's what I think is Zuzu's problem, actually. Sometimes I think Zuzu's like, I, there's something moving. It's a tree, a person, a dog, a car. I don't know what it is. Oh, it's a person. Okay, now I can be happy. You know, I just, I think sometimes dogs do have vision problems. Dog's vision is really different than ours. So I worked with a miniature schnauzer a thousand years ago whose vision was so bad that a fly like a big old horse fly could like do that lazy fly thing and land on her eyeball and then she would startle. So that dog was highly reactive and we figured out pretty quickly that that was a vision problem. So are these dogs, do they generally get along together and cohabitate as roommates pretty well? Yes. They don't have issues with each other, even if they may have issues with other dogs. They have a group of people that they're very comfortable with and the the anxious one, Lucy, can be a little startled by new people. Ethel, on the other hand, you would think that she was, I mean, she was, she almost has a coronary. She's so excited at the sight of another person. So her excitement, I think, will sometimes feed into Lucy's anxiety. 
Lucy is nervous, perhaps, about new people, and Ethel loses her marbles and is so excited. I wonder how Lucy interprets that excitement that, that Ethel has. So that's interesting. So we talked about this in the group class yesterday, that some, just like people, anxiety for some dogs, energy ups, and for other dogs, it down energy. Some dogs, um, I'm going to pick on our wonderful Flufador friends and our wonderful Pity Cross friends and Labrador Cross friends. I'm going to speak in broad terms. Those dogs tend to energy up over stress, where other breeds energy down in stress. So we like to always talk about, well, it's fight or flight. Well, there's other options too, right? It's fight, flight, freeze, like I don't know what to do, or fool around, which is where your dog just suddenly turns into a clown car on roller skates. And it, there's just like a whole bunch of shenanigans. So as we talk about these two dogs, I'm wondering, is Ethel's anxiety perhaps, is that maybe feeding the tomfoolery and she's solving the problem of being unsure, anxious, worried by OCD playing fetch, like getting the dopamine off of that, doing that formulaic play maybe too long. And that's frustrating for Lucy because Lucy's like, I just, she's like a grad student. She just wants the whole world to sit still for three years until she can sort out how she feels about it all. Yes, I would say that I think that is a contributing factor. What we have is Lucy, who is anxious about new things more so than Ethel, tends to stop and watch things. And I think that she's the kind of dog that she will watch Ethel playing and playing or barking or getting excited about a new person or look there's a dog outside or there's a fly over there and I think she can watch it for just so long and take it in but then I think it really does feed into her anxiety and I think she then starts saying to Ethel please stop please stop please stop and Ethel doesn't hear it because Ethel is so busy doing her thing and being excited and getting and getting her very powerful dopamine Right. So I think then what happens is that Ethel then suddenly hears Lucy after Lucy has been saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. I think sometimes you hear the stuff and it accumulates in the back of your head. It's kind of like a running toilet, right? It's suddenly like, oh, my gosh, that toilet, it's been running for like years and I'm suddenly noticing it now. It's been irritating me in the background. It's the kind of thing that I think then Ethel goes, hey, stop yelling at me, man. And she will turn and aggress towards Lucy. In a scenario like this, I think there's a couple of things that you need to be thinking about. And one is, what are the stressors in your dog's life? What are their triggers that add into their anxiety, that add into their um, aggression? What are things that, that amp them up that get them closer to the point where they might spill over into aggression. So what are their triggers? What stressors are there? And to what degree do they stress each other? Like, for example, we said that Lucy was thunderphobic. That's a huge stressor for some dogs. That if there's a thunderstorm today, tomorrow, I'm still going to be unhinged because it's such a huge stressor for me. And so I think that owners need to recognize levels of stress, you know, yeah, that adrenaline dump, the half-life is, I think the last thing I read is 72 hours, which is really different for us. Like we have brain structures that dump other neurotransmitters that go, right, but it was just a thunderstorm. You didn't, there wasn't the storming of the beaches in Normandy. Like it, we weren't being bombed. So um, our, we recover from that kind of stress much more quickly than our dogs do. And I think that that's one of the places where we kind of get the gears off kilter, right? Because we're like, no, that storm was yesterday. She should have recovered from that. And for our dogs, it, it doesn't happen that way. And so it's a really easy misunderstanding. Right. In addition to adrenaline, there's cortisol, which is also a fairly long lasting hormone. And especially, I mean, the more severe the thunderstorm, the more severe the anxiety reaction for the dog. If it's just a couple of like one boom and it's over, that's one thing. But if you have an afternoon of thunderstorms or last summer, we had a whole week of thunderstorms. I can't imagine what that would have done. Well, I can 
to thunderstorm phobic dogs when day after day after day after day, this terror is coming into my life so that by the end of that week, those dogs are unmitigated messes. And you can look at them the wrong way. And the triggers have stacked on top of each other so high that even a mild thing can switch a dog like that into aggression. Right. And I would say how that manifests with lots of families is that they like what I'm listening for to know that we might have trigger stacking going on is when people say it, the 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 reactivity just came out of nowhere. Like the dog just lost his temper and was like he was just obnoxious and unfair or I can never tell when it's going to happen. Those are really good signs. Like if if that sounds like I'm describing your dog or your child, that's where we're talking about trigger stacking typically because it's not that any of the individual stressors that the learner is experiencing is enough to make them lose their marbles and shriek like howler monkeys. It's that the cumulative effect of that stress does tip them over. Call out to Rebecca Johnson. Love you for giving this to me. So I'm going to share it here on the podcast. I think I've shared it probably before. I'm sure I'll share it again. It's fine. So let's talk about spoon theory quickly, because this makes it really easy to kind of grab a hold of this knowledge. So we all get five spoons every morning. Those are the only spoons we can spend. So I get up in the morning and take a shower. And when I step out of the shower, I slide my foot across the floor on the water and smash my pinky toe into the base of the toilet, thus resulting in excruciating pain and a potential pinky toe removal. So I'm in excruciating pain. There goes my first spoon for the day. Now I'm hobbling around trying to come up with a different outfit that has a shoe that doesn't put any pressure on my throbbing toe. So I start to get anxious that I'm going to be late for life. So there goes my second spoon, right? So I finally come up with an outfit. I go, oh my goodness, I'm running late. I jump in the car and I speed on my way to my first appointment and I get pulled over, <laughs> right? So I don't get a ticket, thank goodness, but now I'm even more late, right? So there goes my third speed. So I finally get to my first appointment. I've got my agenda. I've got all my tools ready. And the family says, hold up. We need to talk about this totally complete left field situation that we haven't told you about. So I think I'm going to teach coming when called and their dog is biting everyone. So, uh-oh, I've got to completely switch gears and I'm not necessarily as prepared as I was, would normally be. There goes my fourth spoon. I get through that appointment. Everything's fine. I'm like, wow, it has been a day already. I'm just going to eat my lunch out of my cooler and make the best of the rest of the day. And when I open up my cooler, there's no lunch in it because my lunch is still in the fridge at home because I had to leave because I was running late because of my aching toe. So no big deal. I stop somewhere. I get a salad. I eat my lunch. The rest of the day goes perfect. Nobody bothers me. Nobody cuts me off in traffic. Nothing bad happens. I come home. Christopher's making dinner and he cracks some joke that at any other time I would think was hysterical. But not today because I'm out of spoons, right? <laughs> so it hurts my feelings and I take it personally and he and I quarrel. Well, stubbing my toe is not going to make me fight with Christopher. Having a, a training plan change at the doorway is not going to make me quarrel with Christopher. But the cumulative effect of that stress is enough to, to knock down my resilience. And for us, we can loosely think in about a 24-hour cycle, but for our dogs, we're thinking more in a five and six day cycle. So it, it doesn't feel the same. It feels like it's just crazy and coming out of nowhere, right? That it's super unpredictable. And so then we start to go, well, the dog's just a jerk. Right. I, there's a couple, and, and that's a great analogy. I think we've used it before, but it certainly is well worth repeating because every time I hear it, I feel like I get something new out of it. But what I was going to add on to that are there's two great articles from the Whole Dog Journal. One is called A New Threshold, and it's actually from October of 2010. And then there's another one called Preventing a Death in the Family, which is really like a bad title. It's about interdog aggression. And I can get, I will do links for both of them. 
But in the one on thresholds, this is what she says. And I love this. And it, it dovetails nicely with what you just said. And this is written by, I believe, it's written by Pat Miller. And it is one of my favorites. She says, well, she says, first of all, aggression is caused by stress. Whatever classification of aggression an owner or behavior professional chooses to use, the underlying cause of the aggression is stress. There is usually a triggering stressor when a dog bites a child. It's a good bet that child was a stressor for him. But there is also a background noise of other stressors that push the dog over his bite threshold with that child on that particular day. These may be stressors we don't even notice. And because cortisol, a stress hormone that stay, plays a role in aggression, can stay in the system for at least two days, they can be stresses that occurred yesterday or even the day before. Think of it as canine road rage. She, um, she does a, a, a thing similar to what you just did about human road rage, and she has seven stressors that end up with a guy reaching out in her seat and pulling out a gun, right? So in the dog canine road rage, she has seven stressors. Once the dog goes over threshold, he pulls out his loaded mouth and... And so I thought that was a great way to think of it, is that it's kind of canine road rage. And you're right. When somebody says it comes out of the blue, I'm like, I don't think so. Dogs don't want to be aggressive. They do all kinds of things to stop that level of aggression. They don't want to do that. And I think that if it feels like it's coming out of the blue, a lot of it is because, one, we may not have recognized some of the stressors, or two, we have not, we have failed to recognize some of those stress signals that our dogs may be giving us early on that make it e that would have made it easier for us to intervene if we had recognized the fact that the dog stopped looking, avoided eye contact, closed his mouth, and started lip licking. That's a dog who's saying, um, okay, uh, I need a break here. And recognizing those early signs so that you don't even have to get to the point where Lucy says, hey, Ethel, right? We want to catch Lucy early on so we can help her so that the triggers or the stressors don't start stacking on top of one another to the point where she finally says, yells at Ethel, stop. Ethel doesn't listen. Ethel, stop. Ethel, stop. Ethel, stop. Now she's all excited. And Ethel finally goes, what the heck are you yelling at me for? Both dogs are now over, over threshold. One of the things that made us decide to have this conversation and to do this podcast today was I pretty consistently get calls from people who are like, dog A is attacking dog B for no reason. In in 30 years, I've never, ever seen dog A attack dog B for no reason. And usually dog A was not the problem. Usually dog A is just bigger and louder. Dog B was typically the problem, right? So I start pulling it apart. So I say things like, okay, well, do the dogs eat? at the same time in the same room. What is it like when they go in and out of the back door to go outside to go potty? If the dogs are walked, how calm and relaxed is the leashing up process? How are they navigating pretty typical stressors? If your two dogs are turning themselves into liquid and stacking themselves on top of each other to push out a half an inch space as the door opens to the backyard to go chase the rabbits and the squirrels, they are stressing each other pretty significantly. So like they may have used three spoons in that scenario. If as you're leashing dogs up to take them for their daily walk, Ethel is jumping all over Lucy and banging into her, they're using spoons. If Lucy's eating her dinner, and Ethel eats her dinner quickly and then just glances at Lucy with the thought in her little doggy heart of, are you gonna finish that? That's a stressor. If they're both getting your attention at the same time, we have this constantly. Like I have a whole house of sensitive dogs and when they frustrate each other, they come to me to help them. And then the yucky dog who is frustrating them is with them again, crowding the mom, right? So. I have to be really thoughtful and careful about how we do that. And we see that between kids and dogs too, right? Your dog is worried about the toddler who's maybe a little overtired and overstimulated and shrieky and yelly and sensitive today because, you know, it's Wednesday. 
and it's kind of stressing the dog. And so your toddler comes to you and your dog was already coming to you for help. And so now they're in close confines and the thing that was stressing the other one is right there. Right. This is tough stuff. And sometimes we don't even recognize what's going on. Like, for example, it could be that with with um, Ethel and Lucy, I think we said that that Ethel absolutely adores people and goes crazy at the sight of people. She gets really excited and she runs over and she says hi and then she runs over and gets a toy and then she runs back and then she runs to get a treat. Whereas Lucy is a little bit more uncomfortable with strangers. So what may happen is that Ethel getting all excited and revved up may add to Lucy's anxiety. And if they're out and they meet somebody new and that's really hard for Lucy and she's over the top and Ethel is starting to go crazy, it could be that if they are walking next to one another and Ethel looks at Lucy the wrong way, Lucy may well snap at Ethel, redirected aggression, because what's happened is she has been upset or anxious about the person. She can't lash out at the person. So when the pressure's off a little bit, she's still feeling anxious. She will redirect her aggression towards Ethel. So one of the things that, you know, what you want to do is make sure to recognize what your dog's stressors are. And if you're meeting, if you're out on a walk and you're meeting a whole lot of strange people and you know that it's really hard for one of your dogs, make sure that that dog has enough distance from those people who are coming over. And one of the things that you can do is if your dogs are tiny enough, right, you can always pick one up to get some distance between that one and the one who's getting excited. But what you want to remember is that each dog will have its own triggers and that it's really important to be understanding of what triggers which dog. And, you know, each dog has its own sensitivity. So when you see that happening, Usually I find distance is is your friend. I'm not a big fan of extendo leashes, but we had a dog. Molly would get very nervous when new people would come by. But Rebel, our big, I don't know, looked like a, a fuzzy glyptodont. We called him our Confederate trenching setter because we, we got him. We found him in a Confederate trench in Virginia. Anyway, he loved people. So one of the ways that we kept Molly safe was we had Revel on an extendo lead so he could go out to meet the people and we could keep a distance from Molly so that she could be comfortable with us on walks and not get overwhelmed by strangers. So that's one of the few times I've actually used an extendo leash. Other than that, I'm not fond of them. But that worked well for us. And we lived in the, in the country where we were walking with her. It was an easy place to use an extendo leash because our neighbors would come out and to get their mail or whatever. Rebel wanted to meet the person. That was the way we compromised. So many times when I see trigger stacking happening, it will happen over one of the dogs not taking social cues very well. Like they're just not very good at reading subtle social signaling from us, but also from other dogs. Um, And I will tell you in this house, the cat is the biggest example of this. He's desperately trying to put as much cat hair in my eyes as he can while I'm trying to put on my Breathe Right strip. (laughs) I'm like, listen, cat, we go through this every day, right? He does the same thing to the dogs. Like the dogs use very nice, subtle social signaling. I don't know if the cat doesn't care or if he just doesn't read canine signaling, but it'll he will often not listen to the whispers. And so then you hear the screams, right? Like, so Jack, for example, will sometimes have to grumble at him or grouse at him. Marco will sometimes have to grumble or grouse at him to make a bigger communication about like, dude, get off my head. You know, he's a little obtuse. So often when I'm talking to families that their dogs are having conflict, some of it is that the the dog who gets yelled at is getting yelled at because when everyone tries to quietly go like, hey, Ethel, could you, instead of an 11, could you make that fetch game like a nice three? Lucy has to escalate until she's yelling at Ethel. And then Ethel's like, why are you yelling at me? It can also be that that Ethel's stress, she's using fetch as a way to burn off her stress Right. So this is like the person who paces when they're stressed. Right. 
and the other person is driven to nuttiness and frustration by like stop moving right and as you were using this example of Lucy and Ethel, I was like, oh, Lucy needs everything to sit down and to like meditate and to be calm. And Ethel needs to chatter about it. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think that's it. The other thing I would also tell people is that movement can be a real key to what's going on with your dog. You know, just like some people need, like Brad, he's a big pacer when he's on the phone. He paces around the house and rearranges things. And I'm like, please stop. But he does that when he's on the phone talking, especially if he's talking to a reporter, right? He, he walks around and he, he paces and stuff. But I'm thinking with our dogs, for example, with, with Ethel and Lucy, when Lucy's getting stressed, she might be one of the, the, uh, the shutting down freezer sorts. I shut down. I get quiet. I look the other way. I close my mouth. Maybe if I model calm behavior, you'll be calm. But Ethel's like, got energy, got to move, got to dissipate, got to get this out. And so I think that what we need to look for in our dogs is what's the change in their behavior patterns. If your dog normally is one who likes to lay around and chew on something while mom does her sewing or whatever, and suddenly we're just frenetic or we're super quiet, that should be a key to you that things are bad or things are changing for your dog. Like, for example, I had Zuzu with me when I went over to my daughter's house. And for a variety of reasons, I left her at the house while we went to the park, which I was really glad we did because um, a rabid raccoon showed up at the park. But when we got back, you know, I played some fetch with her in the yard and then put her in the house. So anyway, we get back and we're at my daughter's house. So there are three little kids all running around and Zuzu can't settle. Normally in the afternoons, she would just jump on the couch or curl up in the corner and take a nice afternoon nap. This dog could not settle. She, I, I, you know, I, I took her outside. We went to the bathroom. We came back in. We paced around the couch. We paced around the kitchen. We went in and looked in the living room at the kids and we came back out. She could not settle. And I finally said, Emma said, do you want to stay for dinner? And I said, I do, but I don't think Zuzu does. This is really hard for her. And I think I'd asked enough for her. I'm going to take her home. And that was one of the first times she had spent that much time at my daughter's house. And I think it was unnerving for her because it harkened back to when our, my other set of grandparents, grandkids were living with us and she first got here and found it hard to adjust to kids. So I think that recognizing the fact that I know that in the afternoons, like right now, Zuzu's asleep on my, on my sweatshirt on the floor. This is what Zuzu does in the afternoon. She doesn't pace the house. So I was really glad you mentioned the movement because I think knowing how your dogs normally move through their world will give you a clue as to what's going on with them. Right. So if I know that my toddler gets crazy amped up in the witching hour between dinner and bedtime, right? If that if that's a time we really struggle and I have a dog who amps up under that same set of circumstances, I might separate them, especially if I'm triggered by all that, like, for goodness sakes, could you guys just calm down for a minute, right? I need you to listen to me. Like, think about how many times as a parent or as a grandparent, we say, okay, I need you to calm down and listen to me. Is Lucy saying to Ethel, okay, dude, I need you to calm down and listen to me. And is Ethel just not hearing her much the way our children sometimes are part of listening. So it's easy to help the dogs be more successful with each other, with our kids, with us, when we go, okay, at this time of day, we need a different plan. I mean, I can make a cogent argument. I'd be really crazy interested to see how much sleep Lucy and Ethel are getting because hyperactivity in my experience tends to be overtired. But okay, if I don't have access to that, I might just say, when Ethel wants to play fetch, let's put Lucy in the bedroom with something fun to chew on while that's going on, because watching her sister play fetch endlessly is not in her wheelhouse. Right. And I, I like the idea of trying to recognize when are the hard times during the day, not just for your dogs, but when it's hard for me, you know? 
my daughter's witching hour is not between dinner and bedtime. It's the hour before her husband gets home from work when it's the end of the day. The little one has had a nap, but she's not ready to go down because she'll go down right after dinner. And Emma's trying to get dinner done and the kids are starting to fall apart. And, you know, adding a puppy to all that, that's when Zuzu and I were there. And it was like, you know what? Your kids don't need it. Zuzu doesn't need it. I don't need it. You don't need it. There's a way to make some of this be a little bit easier for everybody. And that's removing Zuzu from the situation. So I think that it's also, it's really, really fair to say that I also have witching hours. You know, like maybe um, I am not the kind of person that you really want to spend quality time with before I've had coffee. I think that it's important to understand what, when are the sensitive times. And if you're having sensitive times, recognize your dog does too. So in our house, trigger stacking happens a lot. The terrier energy ups, not energy downs. Jack energy downs, not energy up usually. Marco would prefer to energy down, but will be dragged into energy upping. And the pug energy ups and is deaf. So just our four dogs, right? There's a lot of, I have to manage how things go so that they're not accidentally stubbing their toes on each other. I also have to recognize when they're just tickling each other's toes. Like when is the pug busting Marco's chops by doing the stuff he does that he's just being a punk and he thinks he's being funny, but Marco doesn't find that teasing very fun. Jack thinks that that teasing is hysterical. So if I see that the pug is in like a really good mood where he's like busting everybody's chops and playing that game, I'm going to put him to play with Jack who thinks that kind of game is hysterically funny. And I'm going to insulate Marco from that. You know, Christopher doesn't like to color. He he thinks he's bad at it, which I just find fascinating. But like he will absolutely melt down if you try to make him color. So if I want to color because that's relaxing for me and I can sit and have a conversation, but I can color and and do that and focus and like find that kind of meditative. I'm not going to invite him to come color with me because he's just going to get grouchier as I relax. I'm going to invite someone who enjoys coloring. So the same thing happens with our dogs. So saying, okay, well, maybe Lucy should get a nice grooming and husbandry massage in the bedroom during the morning playtime because that alleviates stress for her while dad is playing fetch with Ethel up and down the hallway is a good way to divide and conquer. Each dog is getting what they need and they're not using up spoons on each other. Right. And one of the things you can also do too is, for example, Zuzu's a pretty quiet fetch player. You know, she does not talk to me when we play fetch, but some dogs are like, and if that's upsetting to the other dog, one of the things you can think about too is if you have the dog separated, but one can still hear the other, that's a good time to put on through a dog's ear music or some other something so that the dog who is not running around and talking is not stressed out by the one who is running around and talking. So I think that there are environmental things you can do as well to help the situation remain a little bit calmer. The other thing that I, I try to remind people of that have more than one dog is that I was talking to somebody who had two dogs. He said, well, but one dog gets really doesn't like to be away from the other dog. And I'm like, got that. Understand. But he needs to learn to be away from the other dog. Because what happens if dog B needs to spend a day or two in the hospital? Dog A needs to know that life is okay. So I think that the idea of teaching our dogs that good things can happen to them when the other one is not around is a very fine thing to teach them. So I think that that's very true, right? When I'm working with a family to prepare for life with a baby, one of the very first things that we start working on is teaching the dog how to be separate from us. Because there are going to be times that a new mom or dad is fumbling with a shrieking, unhappy baby who they're learning how to console and how to weather that storm, like not the not the first or the last of the storms they will experience. And that can be really distressing for the dog. That will often result in attention seeking from the dog, like, hey, I'm in distress too. Can you help me? And parents generally find that really, really overwhelming. 
right? So a mom or dad who's already fumbling with the new skill of how to deal with a fussy child is now also feeling pulled that their dog's in distress and needs them. So a good practitioner, a good behavior or training professional is trying to help a family get over those hurdles that maybe the dog struggles with, like the dog who doesn't want to be separate from the other dog, but finds the other dog frustrating at the same time, right? Um, I don't know. I think we all experience this during the holidays. We want to be around our family, but they're really frustrating and annoying in their own ways. I think that's the way it's been for two years during a pandemic. Right. Who knew? Who knew? Right. We we joked in this house that about eight months into the pandemic, we were pay- playing an awful game called Why Do You Do That That Way? Right. It's a game where the points don't matter and no one wins. Right. And it it was just it was a little bit too much togetherness and a little bit too much stress and a little bit of learning what this new reality was going to be and how to manage it. Now, the good news is Christopher and I are old, right? We're not really good at being combatants about stuff emotionally or physically. So we both went, wow, we seem really stressed right now. So we probably need to handle that a different way. How about if we start going for a nightly walk, right? We started talking together about what are things we could do together. So If you're talking about like when we were talking earlier about Lucy and Ethel and that Ethel really likes new people and Lucy doesn't, I might have one, if we have two people in the household, one person is walking Lucy on one side of the road and the other one's walking Ethel on the other side of the road. We have two very social dogs and two very asocial dogs in the house. So if if Christopher and I are walking, we usually pair a social and a not social so that when the neighbor kids who love dogs and just lost their golden retriever, come out and want to say hello to the dog, Christopher goes with the social dog toward the children, and I move with the not-as-social dog away from the children and then bring out the second social dog so that we fill those kids up. By the way, those two social dogs are in heaven that they're getting to say hello to little kids. We get to have a nice time with the neighbors, and I've insulated the sensitive dogs from... Like, oh my gosh, there are tiny little fire-breathing dragons. So it's a little bit of a dance that we do. It's not It's not hard. It just takes a little bit of reframing. Well, the other thing I think to remember, too, is that is that kids can do... My grandkids are really good, in general, with my dogs. One of my grandkids tends to really like to hug them. And one of the things we've had to talk about is if you give her a hug... Then you release. If she moves away from you, she's saying, thank you, I've had enough. If she leans into you, you can pet her again. The problem is dogs are going to get, dogs get hugs. They just, as much as they don't care for them, that's going to happen. So what do we do with knowing that my dogs in general are fine with a hug from my grandchildren, but trying to teach the grandchildren how to read the dog. So if the dog is moving towards you, moving in, leaning in, Zuzu's a real leaner. Gracie will put her arms around Zuzu's neck and and she doesn't hug tight, but she does hug. And when she lets go, Zuzu leans harder into her in general. Whereas Clementine goes, um, thanks. And generally walks away. So she's beginning to understand the difference between my two dogs, but it also requires a certain level of supervision. It always requires a level of supervision by an adult, by somebody there saying, okay, that's enough. Thank you dog said, thank you. We're going to move on. Why don't you and I go play this? And I'm going to let the dogs out there. For me, there's a lot of management of the dogs, a lot of in and out. Things start to get worked up here and the dogs start getting kind of like, oh, we're a little anxious. Somebody's going in a crate and somebody's going outside for a break. One of the things I don't want to have happen either is if the dogs are getting amped up by the kids, I don't want them to suddenly turn and take that out on each other. And so one of the things that I try to do is make sure that the dogs have plenty of room to move. My backyard is fenced in. So we go out, I send them out in the backyard. Everybody gets to run around, take a break, take a breather. And then they come back in. Right. Like I said, this trigger stacking, this inner social, what I would call interpersonal, even though it's the dogs, like interdogonal um, interactions, these are all really important. And when I say to somebody, well, 
is Ethel kind of, do you find that when you're trying to communicate with Ethel, you have to sometimes get kind of loud for her to notice that you mean it, that you're, that you're communicating something that's important. Typically a family's going to go, yeah, right. So they've been mad at Lucy, but Lucy's doing the dog version of what they have to do with Ethel too. So sometimes the, the target dog, like the one that I'm getting the call about because it's snarking and attacking the other dog for no reason. When we pull it apart, we go, oh, wait, it's way more complicated than that, right? Like this one's sensitive about this, that one's sensitive or insensitive about that. And when we look at how those puzzle pieces fit together, we go, oh, that's why there's being conflict. So anywhere you can remove usage of a spoon is a win, right? So if you're, if you know your HelloFresh delivery is coming and that your dog is going to lose their marbles over someone on the front porch, you know, generally, like it's going to happen on Tuesday, you can manage your dogs differently. Take Ethel out in the backyard, throw the tennis ball for her or the squeaky toy for her for 30 minutes. She's wiped out. Say, sweet girl, it is time for you to take a nap. We have used up your fetching energy. And then manage Lucy and know that Lucy's not going to be comfortable with somebody getting on the porch with a scary box. So we put her in another space with something yummy to chew on that she thinks is really awesome. And we put on nice through a dog's ear or relax my dog. And we, we try to bridge that time with something relaxing that decompresses the dogs. Yes. Hello fresh is going to arrive in the middle of it but it's not an emergency. The dogs have a little burp over it instead of an explosion. And we start to go, oh, we're gonna get, we're gonna get better at that. Or I might take Lucy for a walk during the window that XYZ is likely to happen or a car ride. There's lots of ways to navigate around it so that you're not rehearsing the inappropriate behavior. And then ideally that we're we're making, or the problematic behavior, it's not even necessarily inappropriate. Like we can usually understand why it happened. It, we're just not comfortable with it. Um, and the other thing I would say is it is a bitter pill to swallow that your dog is uncomfortable with something that we don't think they should be uncomfortable about. The other day, someone offered me a glass of Chardonnay and she meant that as a good thing. I think Chardonnay tastes like hair. Like it's not a good thing. And so I was like, oh, no, thank you. And I think her feelings were a little bit hurt. And I was like, I, it, I'm just not a huge Chardonnay fan. It, I love the, the idea that you're trying to love me with like, here, let's enjoy a nice glass of wine together. You enjoy your glass of wine. I will enjoy you anyway, right? Like, it'll be fine. I'll, I'll drink my lemonade and I'll be perfectly happy with that. So, you know, we all have likes and dislikes. And I might think Julie should like oatmeal raisin cookies. And she just might not like them. So, should our dogs like everything? No. The same way that I shouldn't be forced to like oatmeal raisin cookies. Well, I was going to say, too, one of, one of the things is, is that with these stressors is that you have to take a look at them and decide, are the ones that we can get rid of? Like, for example, if your dogs tend to get snarky with each other, anytime a buffalo horn, a water buffalo horn appears, then get rid of the buffalo, water buffalo horns. They're not worth snarkiness. So if there's something that you can easily get rid of that causes stress with your dogs, then get rid of it. Or what you were just talking about, which is managing them effectively so that the stressor that is inevitably going to happen does not send them to a ten, level 10, but is maybe, you know, a level one or two. So you learn to manage them well so that you can avoid the extreme reaction. Then the other thing Pat Miller says is change his association. So use some counter conditioning to change the association from one of something scary to something that's really not so bad. Teach them an incompatible behavior. So you jump on people and that's, you know, stressful. Well, we're going to teach you to sit instead. And sometimes you're just going to have to live with it. Like I cannot control thunderstorms, but I can help you with them. I can help you manage them. I can get you some thunderstorm medication. We can realize that when you have thunderstorms, things are going to be harder for you. So we're going to try and make it easier after the thunderstorm. So I think that you're absolutely right that there are certain stressors that we simply can't get rid of. Some maybe we can. Some we learn to manage. 
Others just somehow or another have to learn to live with them. And medication is not and maybe should not be your last resort when it comes to some of these stressors. Well, and, and management isn't, I don't know how to explain this. So, so Marco toward the evening gets very sensitive about his sleep. He wants to sleep and he is, he's not a great sleeper. So any animal moving around other than a human, he grumbles about, right? He's not mean. He's not being ugly. He just wants, he's like, it's bedtime. It is a time for dogs to take naps. Everyone should lay down and take a nap. Well, maybe the pug drank a bunch of water and needs to go outside. And so he's walking around the house making pug sounds. And Marco finds that really frustrating. So neither of those dogs are being unreasonable. Neither of those dogs are intentionally being grouchy with the other dog. Right. Both of those dogs are perfectly within their rights. The pug needs to express his bladder. Marco is totally allowed to be frustrated by the fact that the house is too loud. So management recognizing like, hey, that happens every flipping day. I can have set Marco up like here, go lay on this bed in this quiet spot in the house and gate him off a little bit. So he's insulated. The pug can't walk so close so that the pug still can do all of the puggy things that he's doing and be bopping through his day. And Marco gets to have rest when he needs rest. I think sometimes we get frustrated about, well, the dog shouldn't be blah, 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 upset about whatever it is. And in the end, it, it maybe he shouldn't, but he is. Right. Um, I really, really appreciate that. I think we have to take that step back and say, yeah, he shouldn't, or I really wish he didn't, but he does. The reality is this is what I'm facing. So instead of wishing that reality was not what it is, we have to say, okay, not wild about the reality I have, but what do I do to make the reality better for everybody involved? And so I think that's a really important point. I get, I sometimes get families who go, okay, my, my dog is super reactive to people coming in the door, strangers coming in the house, and we have a super social household and people are in and out of our house all the time. And I'm like, okay, then teach the dog how to be comfortable in the den away from all the activity and behind a gate. And they're like, well, I don't want him to be punished. I'm like, he's not being punished. He's being punished when he's in the middle of everybody coming in the door and he's freaking out 37 times a day. That's punishing the dog empirically. He's being put over and over again in a situation in which he is incredibly uncomfortable and we're not helping him. When I say to Marco, here, come lay on this bed next to my desk, he's not in trouble. I'm helping him be successful. He, he doesn't take it as a punishment. He has relief on his little doggy face when I'm like, dude, you get yourself out of the situation. He likes to be special. So if you just tell him like that's I moved your special bed next, then he's like, oh, it's special and I get to be in the special place. But you know what that does is that the same kind of thing that I was just I was thinking is that one of the things that I find to help relieve a lot of dog stress is distance, either mental or physical distance. And so sometimes it's just enough. Like if I'm walking down the street and I see something coming up that I know is a bit of a stressor to my dog, sometimes it's enough just to move them from my left side to my right side. I've given them another three feet from whatever it is that's coming up, and that's enough to reduce the stress on them. So I think and think in terms of mental or physical distance. Mental distance is the idea of putting them someplace and giving them something to do that they're happy about. Like maybe one of the dogs destroys soft toys, but the other one doesn't. So put them in a room where they can cuddle their soft toy or chew on it and not be worried about destructo dog coming in and, and annihilating it. And the other thing is to remember is that you need to understand the difference between a punishment and a reward. A punishment is always like a reward in the eye of whoever's receiving it, not who's doling it out. So however your dog reacts to something will give you the clue as to whether or not that is a punishment or a reward. Not what you think of it. It's what they think of it. Right. And I use tickling as that example. Most of us have at some point had an interaction with someone who with the best of intent was tickling us and it was profoundly uncomfortable and not pleasant. 
Christopher has really bony long fingers. <laughs> and when he tickles, he hurts me. And it's he's the sweetest man in the world. He's not trying to hurt me. But I'm like, no, no tickling. And maybe I'm oversensitive. Okay, doesn't matter. They're my neurons. Instead, like, love me other ways. Play with me other ways. Again, removing your dog from a situation they find uncomfortable, even if it's, like, that's not punishing them. That's going, here, let me help you. And letting the other dog do that weird, bizarre play that drives your other dog crazy is also not bad, as long as that's healthy for that dog. So. It can be that that you're serving different dishes to accommodate the learners and the, the other living things in your house. Where it becomes a punishment is after we're mad already. Right. Well, the other thing I think that what this boils down to is, is kind of where we started, which is the idea of knowing what's a punishment, what's a reward, what's a stressor for your dog, and how can I help the dog manage that stressor so that it doesn't become something that pushes it over or that when it's stacked on top of another stressor pushes him into aggression. And so it's knowing your dog, knowing how to manage your dog and recognizing that each dog has its own individual set of stressors and its own individual way of of how coping with that stressor to reduce it is going to work for that dog. And if you can help Lucy and Ethel by understanding what their stressors are, reducing those stressors so they don't become triggers for aggression, then you're going to have a much more copacetic environment. And also, too, I tell my owners, I said, and you know what? There's going to be great days and there's going to be okay days and there's going to be bad days and just go with it. So today I didn't read things right and things were a mess. That's okay. You get tomorrow. It was I always used to tell my kids, look, I can't teach you to not make your own mistakes. I can I can help you to not make my mistakes but I can't prevent you from making your own. Yeah. Managing the relationships in your household. So they're not picking at it. They're not picking at a scab all the time. Like whether the scab should be there, whether the wound should be there kind of doesn't matter. It's there. Stop picking at it. So if you know that dog a can play fetch until, you know, they're Sisyphus of, of fetch, then, and your other dog gets tired and fatigued and overwhelmed by the constant sound of toenails on the hardwood floor going up and down the hallway, cut your dogs a break. <laughs> Just go, here, you go sleep in the bedroom on my bed. You'll be happier there. And just let them each enjoy some alone time. And they might have to learn how to do that. Right. And, and that's actually a good thing. Okay. Well, I think that the basic summation here is recognize the stressors, learn how to manage or eliminate them if you can, understand that each dog is individual and that what is rewarding for one dog may not be rewarding for the other. And this is all about paying attention, which is the same thing with parenting. I mean, dog ownership is a lot like parenting. It's the whole idea is that pay attention. Somebody once gave me, said, you want a piece of advice for marriage? And I said, yes. And they said, pay attention. Just pay attention. Thanks again for listening to Your Family Dog. If you uh, enjoy our podcast, be sure to like us and on Facebook, as well as give us a five-star rating so that others can find us as well. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.